Have you ever noticed how often folks are guilty of being stubborn to the point of refusing to accept the obvious? One of my all-time favorite stories illustrates this truth. It's the story of the lion who went about the jungle to make sure that all the other animals in the jungle knew who the greatest was in all of the jungle. So the lion started out one morning and went up to the rhinoceros and said, Mr. Rhino, who's the greatest in all the jungle? The rhinoceros looked at him for a second and smiled and said, uh, you are Mr. Lion. And the lion roared with approval and walked away. Shortly thereafter came across the gorilla and said, Mr. Gorilla, who's the king of the jungle? And the gorilla looked at him and thought for a second and said, well, uh, you are, of course, Mr. Lion. And he roared and just kept going his way. Came up to an elephant, looked at this big bull elephant, looked up at him and said, Mr. Elephant, who is the strongest, the greatest beast in all of the jungle? The elephant thought for a second, had enough of that, picked him up with his trunk, started beating him against the ground, threw him up and down a couple of times, kicked him a few times, picked him up, threw him out into the middle of the lake. This battered, bruised lion comes walking out of the water, crawling out, looked up to the elephant and says, listen you, just because you don't know the answer, that's no reason to get so upset. <laughs> hey, you don't pay to get in here. It's like, it's like you know... I'm afraid that that story is a reflection of many of us. You know, we've convinced ourselves that we know the answers in so many areas of life, and yet we've never considered or looked into the matter. And yet we have an answer we think that we know. You know, we cannot enter into the study of the Bible with that kind of mindset. For if we do, we'll miss the truth that God wants to teach. We need to come to Jesus as the teacher of Israel, the Bible tells us in John 3. The teacher of all of Israel came to Jesus at night and asked him several questions. And he came to some degree with an openness to try to learn and to understand. And all of us are to be open and teachable as disciples. In fact, a genuine mark of a true disciple is a learner, a disciple, or discipline. One who learns a discipline is to be open and teachable to God so that God can teach us the truths by which he wants us to live and conduct our lives. You know, Timothy was such a man. He was a man who was open and he was teachable. And as we've gone through the letter that was written to him, the first letter of two letters that were written to him, they were written to him to instruct Timothy as to what God's expectations are for those who are in a leadership position in God's household or the church. There are certain requirements, certain qualifications that must be met in order to be in a leadership position. There are certain things that God requires of a person once they agree to enter into that position. We also learned from the, our time together that there's also a responsibility that all believers have as to how we conduct ourselves in the house of God. And so as we've gone through these issues that we've looked at in this final section... In this final section of instructions to Timothy, as well as to all of God's people, we're told what we are to be doing while we wait for Jesus. While we wait for Jesus. You know what's interesting is that, you know, the blessed hope of the Christian faith is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessed hope of the Christian faith, I'd move it up, but i got some tape here, it's messing things up. So... The blessed hope of the Christian faith is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. You know, that truth is taught all throughout Scripture. In fact, some of the examples that I thought of as I was preparing this in John chapter 14, you may recall that Jesus, as he prepared his disciples for his departure, comfort them with the words that I go and prepare a place for you. And if that wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But because I do that, one day I shall come and I will come for you that you will be with me and that we will be together for all of eternity. 
you know, the Word of God teaches in so many cases. In fact, Jesus often used parables or stories to illustrate, illustrate a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth was that he would often illustrate this particular truth of his return in a parable form where he would compare himself or liken himself to a king who would go away to a distant land. And after a amount of time had passed, he would come back and he would hold his servants accountable for what they did with the talents in one case that they were given while he was away. They would be judged according to their works and they would be held accountable as to what they did while he was away. But he was definitely going to return. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, also 1 Corinthians 15, we're comforted by the words that when Jesus returns that we will become like him, those who are in Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Those who are born again, those who have repented of sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ. The Bible says that those who are in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will be caught up in the air and be with him and we will be with him for all of eternity. You know, in Acts chapter 1, uh, the, the angels told the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven, he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there staring intently into space? Why do you stand there int staring intently as you see him depart? For this same Jesus, as he departed, he shall return. You know, the great hope of every believer is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people and ultimately to establish his kingdom upon this earth. You know, it's important in the book of Revelation, the last thing it says that he who testifies of these things says, I am coming. And John said and emphasized, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If the blessed hope of every believer is that we look for the appearing or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question that I had that was convicting to me as I prepared today was this. When you got up this morning, did you even think for a moment that today could be that day? Have you thought about it recently, in the last week, or the last month, or the last year? You know, I don't know about you, but I tend to think about it when things aren't going that great. You know, you know I, I, I identify with John, you know, exiled on the island of Patmos. Even so, Lord, come now, I'm ready. You know, and yet I talk to other people and say, you know what, man, things are going really good right now. Can you wait till after the wedding, after the honeymoon? You know, can you, at least after the honeymoon, I mean, come on, you know, can, can, can you honor this, you know? You know, it, it's, it, it's all of those things. Or after the baby's born, or after we have our first grandchild, or after I make so much money. I mean, can, can you just wait until, like, as if somehow or another, the coming of the Lord is going to disappoint us? You know, I mean, I know, I mean, the, I know the, the angels, right? I mean, one of two things will happen. It, 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 either they're going on strike... <laughs> Or, or the Lord will return before they ever get back to the playoffs. So, you know, it's just, it's just the way that it is. And uh, I meant the, the Anaheim Angels, not, not, not the one with the loud trumpet, you know. <laughs> so, but the Bible clearly teaches that, you know, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the thing that is convicting to me is, when do we think of that? When is that even a thought for any of us? That today could be that day. Today could be that day. But you know what's fascinating is uh, Paul continues to instruct Timothy and all of us uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we come to a passage that basically tells us very clearly what we're to be busy doing while we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. As in the parables, we are to be active. We are to be busy we're to be busy doing the things that God requires of his people to do while all the time waiting for 
the return of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's a great passage. You know, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ should be a great source of motivation for God's people. You know, to get busy doing what God requires of us to do while we wait for Him. And that's the point of this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to finish this particular letter today as we read these words. In verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you all. You know, in this passage, Paul addresses the question that should be asked by all of God's people, and that is the Lord, while I wait for your appearing, while I wait for you to return, while I wait for you either to call me home or to come back for me, what is it that I should be busy doing for your sake and for your kingdom? What is it that you require of me? An illustration that I thought of as, as I was Preparing this is that we had friends who traveled during their off-season. He, he plays for a, a National Hockey League a team, the Ducks, and he and his wife and child traveled this summer. At first they went to Australia for several weeks, and then they went to the Czech Republic, which is his home uh, country from there, and they were gone for many weeks. And while they were away, um, we volunteered, as, and we, when I say we, that's just my way of taking credit for everything that Linda does. Um, <laughs> We volunteered to watch over their home and, uh, you know, to feed their cat and, and the, you know, and to, to do all the stuff that when I, what, what all did you do? <laughs> no, I, all that stuff. You know, offered to watch over the house and clean the cat and feed the cat and check the house and gather the mail and blah, 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 the swallow the fly that ate the dog, you know, what the, and, uh, and all of those things. So, so she did so with another family friend. Her and Renee kind of split these responsibilities and they did it on a regularly scheduled basis. You know, it became part of the routine of the daily life. You know, I thought, you know, they didn't wait until, what, what day are you coming? You're coming home Wednesday. They didn't wait till Tuesday and then go feed the cat 40 pounds of food, you know, and shovel 400 pounds of, you know, kitty litter or whatever, you know, out the door. They, I mean, they did it throughout the course of the time that they were gone. And yet so many of us, how foolish we are, we think that, you know, if I knew, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's that propensity to put things off. Why do things today if you can put them off till tomorrow? Right? It's kind of like anybody that's ever gone to school knows that, hey, you know what, when's the final? I'll study the night before. You know, when's the paper due? I'll do it that night before. And, and, and so many of us have that propensity to put things off that, you know, we could get done today, but, you know, why do that if it's not due? And so 
I'm convinced that the Lord doesn't want us to know when he's going to come back because we would do nothing until the day before, morning before, hour before. It's like, okay, what is it, God, that you now want me to do? And so the foolishness of thinking of trying to feed a cat, you know, after eight or 12 weeks, you know, all in one session is as foolish as it is for any of us to wait until, okay, Lord, when are you coming back? And then I'll get busy starting to do the things we do. It's kind of like, you know, you see all these commercials about, you know, parents that go away for the weekends and, and the kids are, you know, party time Saturday, man, people are jumping off the roof and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, because mom and dad aren't coming home till you know, Monday. Well, mom and dad come home. You know, I think I saw that on a Leave at the Beaver show. You know, but, uh, you know, they came home early. And it's like, well, what are you doing home early? You're not supposed to be home yet. Hey, it's my house. I didn't know I had to call and check up with you. Or it's kind of like the guy, the, the, uh, the, the, I think it was a manager of a company who's sitting on the beach, calls his employees, his staff members, and says, oh, you know, I had to cut my vacation short. I'll be in in the next few hours. And then he hangs up and he's still sitting at the beach 4,000 miles away and these people are running around the office. He's coming back in three hours, you know. And, and, and it, he's just sitting there and he just goes, you know, I love doing that to them. <laughs> and, 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 and so in a similar manner, the Bible teaches that God's people, as a matter of our daily routine, are to be busy doing certain things while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question that's answered in this passage are what are those things? In this section, Paul lists four characteristics that should help identify a man of God who is looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we look at that, I want you to see, to look, turn to First uh, Timothy 6. Look at verse 11 for a second to a phrase that jumps out as we go through it. And it says, but flee from these things, you man of God. What a great title. You man of God. The title man of God is simple, yet it is immeasurably rich as you look through scripture and you find different examples of when that title is used. It is used often throughout the Old Testament. It's used only twice in the New Testament. And we're going to take a look at the other usage rather than this one. But man of God is a title that is given often throughout scripture and it points to an individual who represents God by proclaiming his message to the world around them. God's messenger, you man of God. Moses was identified in scripture as God's man. A man of God who declared the message of God to the world around him. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, even the angel of the Lord was identified as a man of God. A messenger of God. And so was King David, a man of God. Now, Timothy is being placed in the same company as all these great heroes of the Christian faith, as a man of God. It's a wonderful title. It is a humbling title to be identified by God as God's man. You're my man, a man of God. The second time it's used is in 2 Timothy, which we'll see when we get to that in September. But in 2 Timothy, if you notice, turn with me for a second to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is where we all come in. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We read, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that what? that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Although the subject in this particular case of these verses at its, at its very specific interpretation is Timothy. Paul is telling Timothy, hey, listen, 
Don't you ever forget that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. It is profitable. The word profitable means that it has a positive bottom line. It's an accounting phrase that says, hey, you know what? It's a positive bottom line. You and I will never waste our time being exposed to the word of God. Whether we're hearing it, whether we're reading it, whether we're studying it, whether we're memorizing it, whether we're meditating on it, it'll never be a waste of time if the word of God is proclaimed and taught with accuracy. It'll never be a waste of time. He says that it, the purpose is for us to study the word of God, that we may, as men of God, the man of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When he's talking about man of God, it includes women as well. Mankind, that all men and women of God will be adequately equipped to do the work that God is requiring us to do while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In its widest interpretation, every person who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is directly affected by what is being taught. We will be adequately equipped to do all the work that God is requiring of us to do. Work, the Bible says, that was prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. Work that was prepared for you and I to do as believers and when yet we were still in rebellion to God and we're not even children of God. Work that God has called us to do. So the point is simple. How should a man of God conduct himself as he waits for Jesus? Now we're ready for the four characteristics that Paul is going to outline in this particular passage. First of all, he says that the man of God, a man who is loyal to God, God's man will be known for what he flees from for what for what he flees from notice that going back to first timothy chapter six he clearly says that there's a contrast here notice in verse 11 but sharp contrast and contrast a man of god from those false teachers of the previous section there are only two groups of people in the world and it's very important that this is clear in our minds and that is this there are only two groups of people in the world there are those who are lost, condemned, judged already, separated from the mind of God, those who are dead to God and alive to sin. And then there are those who are alive to God and dead to sin. There are those who are born again. There are those who are children of God. There are those who are saved from the wrath of God. There are those who the Bible says are born again from above. They are lovers of God. They are not lovers of this world. They are lovers of righteousness. They were children of God to those who believe in, their na in his name. The bottom line is this. There are only two groups of people in the world. Those who are lost. Those who are saved. Those who are children of the devil. And those who are children of God. Those who are dead spiritually. And those who have been born again by the will of God and not the will of man. The question is this. How does one who is dead to God become alive to God? It is a miracle of God to those who recognize they are sinners as proclaimed by God, that they are dead to God, alive to sin, and those who repent or have a change of mind and heart about their sinful condition and also about many other things, including that which is, there's not all roads lead to heaven. 
There's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, God's only Savior to this world. The only way a person becomes alive to God and dead to sin is that they repent of their sin and they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for their sake, his resurrection from the dead. The Bible says that those who, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life to those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so important for us to understand because the Bible then tells you and I who have recognized our sinfulness, repented as we're in rebellion to God. The Bible says that God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that God loved us first that's why we can now love. The Bible says when while we're in rebellion against God, Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. While you and I were running from God, God was pursuing us with an everlasting love as he sent Christ into this world to die on, on the cross on our behalf. The only thing that you and I need to do is to humble ourselves, brokenness, turn from sin and turn to God, trust in him and invite Jesus Christ into our life as our savior. The Bible says the moment that happens, that we're born again from above, that we become children of God to those who believe in his name. And then the Bible says this, that now old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Conduct yourself as Christians. Conduct yourself as those who have been born again. Conduct yourself not as the world which is lost conducts itself and how it behaves, but now conduct yourself in a way that is worthy of your calling, that you have been called from darkness into this light so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who have done so. There is a lifestyle that is reflective of a person who is genuinely born again, and there is a lifestyle that is reflected of those who are dead to God and continue to live in sin. What this passage is clearly teaching is this. There is a sharp contrast between unbelievers and believers. Between those who are still dead in their sins, even though they live a life that we can see their lifestyle and those who are now dead to sin and alive to God. There is a sharp contrast. What concerns me, what, what frightens me, is when I hear and see and read of surveys of Christians where there's no difference in our behavior from those who profess to be Christians and those who profess not to believe anything. And the lifestyle is the same. Sexual immorality, divorce rates, uh, um, you, you go down through it, everything and anything. Usage of drugs, usage of alcohol. I mean, you go down through and you say, you know what, there's no contrast in life or behavior between those who profess to be Christians and those who profess to believe nothing. There's something clearly wrong with that, folks, according to what God's word teaches. There's an objective standard that we have to measure behavior by, and we look and see what God has to say. Otherwise, we're, we're just as guilty as the lion who thinks he's got the answer and is clearly refuting the evidence that's all around us. The man of God will be known for what he flees from. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in or you're out. You're either dead to God or you're alive to God. A man of God realizes there are certain things to be avoided at all costs. But is a contrast, and the word he says is to flee or to separate ourselves from those things that are not conducive to the Christian life. 
There are times in life when running away is a sign of being a coward and a sign of weakness. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was frustrated because of the persecution that he experienced as he was led by God to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem to protect God's people. In the midst of all the rubble, in the midst of all the turmoil and all the opposition, he asked himself, am I such a man that I would flee from this opposition? And the answer was obviously, no, I'm not such a man. There are times where fleeing is a sign of being a coward. There have been many times personally in our ministry where we have thought about fleeing. It's very easy to justify that you don't need the aggravation. It's very easy to say things like, you know what, hey, I'm just volunteering my time. I'm just volunteering the gifts that God has given me. I'm just volunteering. I mean, what am I going through all this for? I'm just a volunteer. It's bad enough if you're getting paid going through garbage. But when you're doing it for free, you've got to stand back and say, what is wrong with this picture? And you're tempted to say, you know what, I'm going to flee from this. I'll just go somewhere else. But you know what we found? No matter where you serve God, you will be persecuted. There will be opposition. Whether it's from within, whether it's from without, there will be persecution because there will be those who have an agenda that is not God's agenda, it is not God's will. Oftentimes and often, often, uh, often situations where it's like, you know what, someone has an agenda that isn't God's will. And they're going to fight that. And we've got to consider the bigger picture and there are times where you've got to stay and fight rather than to flee. But there are also times when fleeing... And in fact, our English word fugitive comes from the Greek word that's used here when fleeing is a sign of wisdom and a means of spiritual victory. It didn't take long for God to remind me of the greatest flee- story of fleeing in all of, the script- all of the Bible. And that is the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house who was being tempted, sexually tempted, to have a sexual relationship with his boss's wife. And the Bible says... That Joseph fled. He ran. She tore off his clothes and he kept running. He ran naked. But he kept running. And the bottom line is is that that word picture is very clear and evident that there are times in our life where we must flee from the situation that we're in because it is wise behavior before God. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It goes to the light of what we're talking about. Therefore, glorify him in your earthly bodies. Flee sexual immorality. Flee from youthful lusts. Flee from idolatry, which we'll talk more about. The present tense is that we should continue to flee from these things every day of our life while we await for Jesus to return or for him to call us home. We are to continue to flee from this. See, it's not one of those things where is a certain time of life where you just flee from it then and as if somehow or another you don't flee from it later. Listen, don't ever let your guard down. Continue to flee from those things that will separate us from fellowship with God. We need to continue to do so. David confronted and fought Goliath. And yet there was a time where he fled from King Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. David was far from being a coward. David was a man of God. 
David was a man who was used by God to confront the nation of Israel's greatest enemy, Goliath. He was not a sissy. He wasn't a wussy boy. He wasn't a pansy. He wasn't a milk toast. He wasn't any of those things that others accuse people of being because we flee from things. Listen, he was a man of God who had more character and more courage than all of the, the army of Israel combined, and he fought Goliath, and yet when Saul tried to kill him, the Bible says he fled because he did not want Saul to be guilty before God. He fled. There are times where we fight, there are times where we flee, and we must know the difference between the two. We've got to seek God's wisdom, we've got to seek his word, we've got his spirit living within us who are born again to help us distinguish between the two. Jesus Christ called his disciples and said, you must deny yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow me. There are times where he said that we would be separated from our own families because God's will would become preeminent over our own desire, over our own goals, over relationship, over material things and possession. There are times in life where, you know what, we've got to seek the will of God at whatever earthly expense because God's will is the ultimate. As I was, as I was running the other day and thinking about this and really chewing on this, God brought to mind a young man that I, that I know personally who was dating a gal who was not a believer. And in fact, she, was, she, she believed something totally contrary to what the Bible teaches as far as the person and the work of Jesus Christ. She was a Mormon who denied the deity of Jesus Christ and everything that the Bible teaches. She was a person who believed that Jesus was a God, one of many gods who became a God by living a good life. And we all could attain the same type of deity. And the Bible teaches that, you know what, that's a direct, that's a direct conflict. In direct conflict, it's, it, it, it's, it's heresy. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And yet in their relationship, they struggled with, okay, well, where are we going? I mean, we, we, we've got such, uh, uh, I mean, we're not even close. We're not even in the same universe when it comes to a belief system. Where are we going with this relationship? And as it finally came to that crossroad where there was a decision that had to be made, and the decision is always this. The greatest commandment of God is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. That is the greatest commandment of every believer is to love God before everything else. Flee idolatry. Do you know that our relationships could be a form of idol worship? You know, our possessions could be a form of idol worship. We're to flee idolatry. And as they came to this crossroad, he became, became very much convinced that that relationship would not work because what fellowship does darkness have with light? She was a beautiful young woman. She was intelligent. She was caring. She was all the things that anyone could ever want in a person that you'd want to date. But there was one thing that she wasn't, and that was she was not a child of God. And he separated himself from that relationship. And I praise God for that. We prayed for that. We prayed that somehow or another she could come to faith in Christ and would continue to do so. But we prayed, more importantly, that no relationship would cause this young man to stumble in his walk with Jesus Christ. You see, there are times in our life where we must separate ourselves from those things that are difficult to have to leave behind, but are right according to the will of God. If you're in a job that does not, is not conducive to your walk with Christ, then separate yourself from it. Even if, but Chuck, you don't understand. I, I can't, I, you know, I got seniority and I make so much money and I get so much vacation. Do you love God or do you love money? See, it all comes back to that, doesn't it? You can't love both. And the reason people justify staying where they are is because they love money more than they love God, as if God cannot provide for us somewhere else that's more pleasing to him and his will for us. 
So we stay in jobs that aren't conducive to our walk with Christ because we don't want to sacrifice material things as if God is limited how he can provide, how foolish we are, and how, oh, oh, we of little faith. We have relationships we shouldn't be in. We have friends who don't encourage us in our walk with Christ, but they take us far from it. And the conduct in the midst of that relationship is not pleasing to God. The word of God says to you at this moment in time, get out of that relationship. Find new friends. Find friends who love Jesus Christ and the word of God and want to be obedient to God and his word. Because you know what? It's hard enough when we have that kind of support structure to continue to do what's right before God. Yet alone place ourselves in an environment that is conducive to failure. Get out of that work environment. Find new friends. If you're in a party somewhere and you walk into a house and things that are going on that aren't pleasing to God, turn around and walk out. Who cares what people think about you? It's time that God's people be more concerned what God thinks about us. Turn around and walk out. Every one of us face a crossroads and the decisions, are ha they have to be made. And the decision you're making is this. Do I love God more than this position or this situation? Paul tells Timothy and us to separate ourselves, as he says, from these things. Well, what are the things he's talking about? 1 Timothy chapter 6, there are all the things, remember, but those who want to get rich and fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into destruction and ruin. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. What he's saying, what are these things? These things are everything involved with the love of money. He's saying, separate yourself from these things. And they may be people you hang out that love money, that love things, that acquire things and want things and all that goes along with it. While we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must separate and flee from the love of money, the snares, the sin that come along with loving money more than loving God. The man of God must use money as a tool and testimony to win others to Christ and not fall victim to greed and covetousness. In Luke chapter 16, we're told that, you know what, hey, make friends with the mammon, mammon of unrighteousness. So that one day when we're in heaven together, we'll have people who will be there because we use the money that God has given us as a tool to lead them to Jesus Christ. And as a testimony that our faith is in Christ and not in the uncertainty of riches. Can you imagine how beautiful that is because of our generosity that we gave to people and that generosity is what, what, what uh, broke their hearts to come to faith in Christ and turn from sin and accept him as their savior? He goes, use the mammon, use the money of unrighteousness for eternal purposes so that when it fails and it will, it's temporary. It stays behind. I told you last week, never saw hers, you know, pulling a U-Haul. You know, it doesn't go. It stays. And God is saying, send it ahead. Store it in heaven, not here on earth where rust destroys, moth destroys, and thieves break into steel. Send it ahead. Wire it ahead by using it as a tool and testimony. Fleeing from the love of money is something that distinguishes a man of God from a man of this world. Let me read this story to you that I read. It. I was like, wow, you got to be kidding me. Was one of the oh, what a great name, Stud for an athlete. I love that. I just thought of that. I didn't even realize that because I wasn't sure what a cricket star was until I looked it up. C.T. Stud was one of 19th century England's greatest cricket stars. After his conversion to Christ, he decided upon a missionary career. Before leaving for the mission field, he decided to give away his inheritance, and his biographer picks up the story at this point. 
So far as he could judge, his inheritance was 29,000 pounds, which was quite a sum of money in, in this particular day. But in order to leave a margin for error, he decided to start by giving 25,000 pounds. One memorable day, January 13, 1887, he sent off four checks of 5,000 pounds each and five of 1,000 pounds. This was no fool's plunge on his part. It was his public testimony before God and man that he believed God's word to be the surest thing on earth and that the hundredfold interest which God has promised in the next life is an actual reality for those who believe it and act upon it. it says he sent 5,000 pounds to Mr. D.L. Moody expressing hope that he would be able to start some gospel work in North India where his father had made his fortune. Moody hoped to carry this out but was unable to and instead used the money to start the famous Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. 5,000 pounds he sent to Mr. George Mueller, 4,000 to be used on missionary work and 1,000 among the orphans. 5,000 pounds to George Holland in Whitechapel to be used, quote, for the Lord among his poor in London. And 5,000 pounds to Commissioner Booth Tucker for the Salvation Army in India. Since various other organizations received the remainder of the 25,000 pounds, his actual inheritance turned out to be a few thousand pounds more than he originally figured, so he gave some of that money to other organizations and the rest to his fiancée as a wedding present. Not to be outdone, she gave that money away. The couple then went to Africa as missionaries with nothing, but I would add, with everything they needed to be successful in the sight of God. Now, understand this. God doesn't require this of all his people. But I want to ask you one question I had to ask myself in this. But if he did require it of you, what would you do? What would you do? The rich young ruler said, no, I don't think so. You got another plan? Got another idea? See, friends, not all unity is good and not all division is bad. You know, there are times when the man of God must separate himself from people, possessions, and prideful goals that are not pleasing to God and hinder our walk with him. Before I go to the next point, I'm going to ask you a question to ask yourself, and that is this. What or who is holding you back? What or who is holding you back from being everything that God wants you to be for his kingdom and for his glory? Give it up. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to obtain that which he can never lose. Number two, secondly, a man of God is known not only by what he opposes, but also by what he proposes. And what I mean by that is very simple. You know, the Christian life was always something that I looked at as very negative. Don't do this, don't do that, can't do this, can't do that, can't go here, can't go there, can't be with these people, can't be with those people. You know, it was always something negative. You know, it was always, you know, giving up, giving up, giving up. You know, and there's nothing attractive to sin nature about giving things up. It really isn't. But when we're born again, then you know what? It's not that big a deal. Because we begin to realize that the things, quote, we're giving up, we're not giving up anything at all because they're all things that made our life a mess to begin with and now are being replaced with something that's better. 
So we're not just talking about things that we oppose, although that is true. We certainly should oppose sin. After all, that's what sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross for, for us. Sin sent Christ to the cross, so there's nothing good about it. It destroys lives. When sin was given, when, when sin gave birth, it gave birth to death. Nothing good came out of it. So therefore, you know, we should always keep that in mind. But notice, there are some virtues that we should follow after or to pursue. Number one, we're to pursue, he says, righteousness. The word righteousness simply means this, right living or doing that which is right before God. Doing the right thing before God. We're to pursue that. We're to flee from all those things that hinder us in our walk with God and sin and temptation and all that comes with it and to pursue that which is right before God. Right living. Are you pursuing right living? Integrity. 1 Samuel 12, 3 and 4, we read these words. Here I am. Witnesses, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? It says, Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribes with which to blind my eyes? I will then restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Isn't that beautiful? See, there's freedom that comes in having nothing to hide. Of living a life of integrity that allows us to have freedom before God and before man. See, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. The only thing that matters is what does God and other people think of you? Who cares what we think of ourselves? Well, we all, you know, we all got a highly overrated, inflated view of ourselves. But as far as God and man is concerned, that's important. See, pursuing righteousness, what Samuel said was this. He followed in the footsteps of those who were leaders who were corrupt and used their leadership and authority in a corrupt manner to line their own pockets, to line their own bank accounts, to take care of themselves and their families. They manipulated and used this position of trust and authority for their own personal benefit. I heard, an article, I, I heard a, a story the other day that said that the top 20 bankruptcies in America, top 20 bankruptcies in this country, the top 20 bankruptcies, the CEOs of those 20 companies made $3.8 billion for themselves and for their families and for their, their, their inheritance or their trust while they were literally driving their companies into the ground. They exercised their stock options at the expense of all of their investors. See, it comes down to integrity. And what God is saying for you and I as God's people that we are not only to oppose sin and all that comes with it and the love of money, but we are to pursue righteousness, living right before God, so that we can stand before God and man and say, I haven't stolen a thing from any of you. If any of you have any accusations, make them now while we're all here in public and I will do whatever I have to do to make it right, but I have done nothing wrong before any of you. What a beautiful place it is to be there in life where we can make that claim. Samuel said, hey, am I guilty of anything? Point it out. See, we're to pursue righteousness. And by the same token, we're to pursue godliness. Godliness is godlikeness. Living in such a way that when people see our life, they see Christ living within us. As Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. See, when people see our life, they should see Jesus. When people see how we respond and we react to certain situations, they should look at us and say, man, there is something different about how you are reacting and responding that's so different about the way other people in this world react and respond. What is it? 
It's Christ. Him living within me. What would Jesus do? The bracelets. You know, we wear them. Well, shoot, you know what? You don't even have to wear one if you just live like them. And you got people wearing, you know, it cracks me up when I see people driving down the freeway with a fish sticker on their car, cutting people off and, you know, driving in and out, of, you know, going 190 miles an hour. And, you know, it's like, put the sticker on the window and wind it down. You know, what do you got on your bumper? You know, it's like, look, you know, there's, hey, there's a, there, you know, there's a person who loves Jesus. They're just an idiot. You know, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's like, what in the world are we doing? What kind of message are we sending to people? Yeah, you know, like Christ-likeness. Faith. Faith means just sticking to it. It's been, it's been said, I love this, it's been stated, the greatest ability is dependability. You know, just, just, sticking, just sticking with it. Fighting the good fight. As Paul said, I fought the good fight. He goes, pursue love. The love that he's talking about here isn't lust, it's love. And it's love that considers others more important than ourselves. It's a love that seeks to give and not to gain. It's a love that looks to what your need is. I don't even care about my own. That's God's love. That's the love that sent Jesus Christ from heaven to earth to Calvary and back. The love that says, you know what? You need me to do what I'm about to do. I don't need to do this for me. You need me to do this for you. That's the humility, the attitude of humility that was demonstrated in our Lord Jesus Christ as he left heaven to come to earth, to die on the cross, not for him, but for us. That's agape love, self-sacrificing love. If you seek to please yourself, you will never, ever, ever be pleased. Ever. Perseverance, patience, endurance, courage to continue in the tough places in life, to be steadfast while we're waiting for God to clearly give uh, a, a picture of where he has us going, to be steadfast in the middle of all of that, to not be sidetracked through the process, and gentleness. Gentleness is strength under control. Pursue these things, righteousness. He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he shall be content, satisfied. We live in a world that's trying to become content through materialism and possessions, and the Bible says it'll never happen. Like I said, it's like drinking salt water, man. It just makes you more thirsty. The man of God is known for what he flees from, for what he follows after, and also, as I mentioned, for what he fights for. You know, there are things that are worth fighting for. And we need to recognize and understand that, you know what? We need to be men and women who the Bible says in verse 12 of 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. We need to fight the good fight. This verb means to keep on fighting. It's a word from which we get our English word agonize. It's a word that's used of athletes and a word that is used of soldiers. It is to agonize and continue to do something until you accomplish the mission or the task at hand. I have been around athletics all my life. I have been involved personally in athletics, and I know what it means to agonize or to be disciplined or to be determined or to overcome obstacles or to sacrifice certain things to meet goals that you've set. I know what that means to agonize until the goal is accomplished. I see men and women all the time who personally are disciplined and they have sacrificed tremendously in order to attain the goal that they have set. All you've got to do is anytime there's an Olympics and you hear the stories of what people have done and what their, the sacrifices they have made, 
you begin to realize that no one reaches that level of achievement without enduring great personal sacrifice. Dedication and discipline and determination and overcoming obstacles and over and over. And we all love to hear those stories. The man or woman who was injured and they thought their career was over and they fought back. You know, the, the Lance Armstrongs of the world who, that first of all, they thought he wouldn't live yet alone ever to be able to ride a bicycle again and then to war, win four consecutive Tour de France. I mean, it's, it's just like it's inconceivable unless, of course, you know what it means to sacrifice to achieve a goal. There's a person that rides bikes that doesn't go, wow, I can't believe it. I was watching yesterday at triathlons, and I've run four marathons, and I'm watching these people, 72-year-old guy running. This is his 14th. This woman, 74-year-old woman, 14th consecutive triathlon, Ironman, two-and-a-half-mile swim in the ocean, 112-mile bike ride, and then a 26-mile run. And I'm watching her going across the finish line going, she's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at the TV, you're the man, but she's a woman, you're the woman. It's like, holy smokes, it's unbelievable. And all that God is saying is if we can do that for earthly goals, can we not even consider doing it for heavenly goals? What are we to agonize over? We're to agonize over winning people to Christ, the faith. The body of belief, the faith, the body of Christian truth, the contents of the word of God. The supreme reality is that, you know what, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're to personally sacrifice, we're to personally overcome all the opposition, we're to personally endure, to persevere, to be gentle in the midst of all of it, so that we may win some to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that all people are lost? Do you believe that all people outside of Christ will go to hell? They are condemned already. Do you believe that? Then we should do everything that we can to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest news you can tell any person is this. Even though you are dead in your sins, God loves you anyway, and he sent Christ to die for you. You don't have to do anything but to recognize you're a sinner, to turn from sin and turn to God. You don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to give so much money. You don't have to give up anything. You don't have to do anything but to repent of sin and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. It is not a list of 50 million things to do in order to attain some godhood by your works. It is not that at all. It is Christ. Christ and him crucified trust in him that's all that you have to do to be right with God what a beautiful message what a simple message a good news there's nothing better than that it's not you it's not me it's not our efforts it's not our work it's all about God and what he's done for us and all you need to do is trust in Christ the profession of faith that eternal life you know he says take hold of eternal life man get a good grip on the fact that you know what have an eternal perspective in this world and not one of temporary nature don't lose sight of the big picture. It isn't always just about you right now in this moment in time. It's about what God is trying to do through you. The question is, what are the circumstances of my life, Lord? How can you use those to further your kingdom and further your plan? This isn't about me. Oh, God, why me? Why this? Why now? Why, 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 why? It's what do you want to do through this circumstance for your kingdom and your glory? The good confession, I like this. Timothy is being said, hey, listen. Don't you ever forget that good confession of faith that you professed. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it's with the heart that man believes in righteousness and it's with his mouth he professes resulting in salvation. You know what he's saying? Hey, listen, 
You have taken a public stand for Jesus Christ. You are a marked man. You are a man of God. Every person in your life is watching everything you do and say. Don't let them down. Don't let God down. I stood and I gave my testimony a week or so ago before a room of 200 and some people of all different backgrounds, all different ages, all different walks of life. And as I stood there and shared what Christ has done in my life, I began to realize that, you know what? Every person in that room has heard me identify myself with Jesus Christ and that I am a child of God, that I am a Christian. And guess what? From that day forward, every person I come in contact with that knows I've made that profession of faith will hold me accountable to what I said that day. And you know what? And rightfully so. And rightfully so. If people know that you're a believer in your business, in your neighborhood, in your family, in whatever walk of life you find yourself, if they know that you've identified yourself with Christ, then the only picture of Jesus that they'll see until they repent of sin and respond with faith is you. Christ living within you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When people see you, do they see Jesus? Are you pursuing God-likeness, Christ-likeness in how you respond to other people around you? how you conduct yourself. Paul was telling Timothy, hey, you know what? Don't you ever forget that you have been identified with Christ. And so you will either be the greatest stumbling block for a person to come to faith, or you will be the light that God uses to attract them to God's truth. You will be one or the other. There's no in-between. And for those of you who think like I used to think, and I know what you're thinking, and that is this, then I just won't tell anybody. No, that's not an option. I wrestle with it. I always won't tell anybody. If no one knows, I can do whatever I want to do, and I won't, hey, God, you know, I won't do, you know, no one will look negatively at you. I said, but Chuck, remember that you are to be my witness. You are to be my witness, command. You will be my witness. You will go into all the earth. You will teach others about me. You will tell others about me. You shall be my witness. You will testify of what God has done in your life. So it's not an option to not tell people. And in fact, if anything, it's just as disobedient not to tell people as it is to tell people and then be disobedient. So just do the right thing. Isn't this great? It just boils down to the very simple things, doesn't it? And again, I say to you, I'm not feeling the love today. I like that. Somebody gave me a cartoon and it had this pastor. He's talking to his wife. And he goes, you know, honey, it's really nice to hear those amens every now and then. But just one week, I just like to see him do the wave. (laughs) Don't start now. Oh, there he goes, the balcony. There we go. And lastly, this. A man of God is not only known by what we flee from, temptation that leads to sin and sin itself, and anything that holds us back from God, A man of God is known by what we follow after, a virtuous life, all the things that we talked about, Christ-likeness, God-likeness, gentleness, love, you know, all of those things. We're to follow after those things. What we're to fight for, those things that will never pass away. You know what we're to fight for? The Word of God and the souls of men. See, in essentials, we should have unity. The Christian faith, the body of the Christian faith will never change. The sinfulness of man salvation in Christ and in Him alone. 
you know, the body of the Christian faith. In that, we need to all be united. In the, in the non-essentials, there's plenty of liberty and grace. But in all things, there should be charity and love. That's what Augustine said. And I concur. We should also be faithful, notice, to the commandment in 1 Timothy. He says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The commandment, again, is everything that God teaches in the Word of God. Everything. Statutes, commandment, ordinances, all those things are words interchangeably used throughout the psalm, for example, that has to do with the Word of God. We're to be faithful to the Word of God. I believe in God's Word, period. What God says goes. It refers to the entire Word of God. The man of God will preach, guard, proclaim, and protect the Word of God. Preach it to a lost world and protect it from those who would try to minimize the importance or the relevance of it. We're commanded to do so. He says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. If God is my witness, I command you, I charge you, who gives life to all things. Don't forget who God is. He gives you your very life. The fact you and I got up today is a blessing from God so that we can use our lives for His purposes and for His glory. It is a gift from God. Today, Lord, what do you want to do in my life today that will further your kingdom and your cause? You gave me this life today. It's a gift that you've given me. I owe it to you. How do you want me to use it? When was the last time you woke up and asked God that? Start doing it tomorrow. It'll change your life. And God will work through you. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, the blessed hope of every believer is Jesus is returning. He's coming again to, to take us to be with him. That where he is, we will be with him forever. Man, that is a great promise. In fact, the Greek word that's used here, appearing, is one where we get epiphany, which is a glorious manifestation. It was used of false gods that would appear to deliver people from their problems. Paul took a word that was used in the Greek culture and gave credit to the Lord Jesus Christ when our Savior would come and appear and deliver us from our problem. He's come to deliver us and take away the stain and the wrath of God, the, 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 uh, the, the condemnation of God was sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 that He's come to take away our sin, past, present, and future, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Him. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of all things, which is the Word of God. While we wait for Jesus in closing, we're to flee from temptation, snares, and all that is sinful before God. We're to follow after a virtuous life, pursue the life that God wants us to live so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to fight for those things that God says we should fight for, which is the truth of God's Word and the souls of men. Those are the only two things the Bible says that it will last forever. And we are to, in this particular case, be faithful to the truth of the Word of God. You know what? And if we live like that, the world will know that we are His. In closing, I want to share a story with you that is very convicting to me, and I hope so as well. But for many years, Admiral Hyman Rickover was the head of the United States Nuclear Navy. So his admirers and his, and his critics held strongly opposing views about the stern and demanding admiral. For many years, every officer aboard a nuclear submarine was personally interviewed and approved by Rickover. says those who went through those interviews usually came out shaking in fear, anger, or total intimidation. And among them was ex-president Jimmy Carter, who years ago applied for service under Rickover. This is the account of his interview with the admiral. says, I had applied for the nuclear submarine program, and Admiral Rickover was interviewing me for the job. 
It was the first time that I ever met the Admiral when we sat in a large room by ourselves for more than two hours. And he let me choose any subjects I wished to discuss. And very carefully, I choose those about which I knew most at the time. Duh. Current events, seamanship, music, literature, naval tactics, electronics, gunnery. And he began to ask me a series of questions of increasing difficulty. In each instance, he soon proved that I knew relatively little about the subject that I had chosen. Since he always looked right into my eyes and he never smiled, I was saturated with cold sweat. Since finally he asked a question and I thought I could redeem myself, he said, how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? He said, since I had completed my sophomore year at Georgia Tech before entering Annapolis as a plebe, I had done very well. I swelled my chest with pride and answered, sir, I stood 59th in a class of 820. I sat back to wait for the congratulations, which never came. Instead, the question, did you do your best? Says I started to say yes, sir, but I remembered who this was and recalled several times at the academy when I could have learned more about our allies, our enemies, weapons, strategy, and so forth. I was just human. I finally gulped and said, no, sir, I didn't always do my best. He looked at me for a long time. Then he turned the chair around to end the interview. He asked me one final question, which I've never been able to forget or even to answer. He turned his chair and in closing asked me this. Why not? And I walked out of there cold, shaking, and filled with sweat. Why not? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns for you and I, he will ask you and I, those who are in Christ, it is not a judgment for sin. It is a judgment for performance. It is a judgment for what we've done in this life to further the kingdom of God. And he will say to you and I, Chuck, did you always do your best for me? And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like ex-President Carter and stand before an admiral and say, no, sir, I did not. I want to be able to stand and say, Lord, you know me, and I always did the best that I could. And I want to hear him say, Yes, you did. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How about you? Are you doing your best for the kingdom of God? May I be so bold as to ask, if not, why not? Our God's mercies are new every morning. And there's no better time to start doing that what is right before God than today. It is never too late to do what's right before God. Won't you commit to that today? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, help us to become more aware of your coming so that it motivates us to be everything that you would have us to be, to be used by you for your purposes and for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. God, may we be men of God, women of God, who are known by our life, the conduct of our life, the things that we flee from and separate ourselves from, the things that we follow after and pursue, the virtuous life that's laid out in Scripture, the things that we fight for that are pleasing to you and you alone, the Word of God and your truth and the souls of men. God, we just pray that that would be true of each one of us. God, help us to understand the responsibility that we have and that while you are gone, that we are to be busy doing the things that you have called us to do. 
God, may we never be so foolish as to wait to the last minute and then try to get things done. Because, God, you know you want it to be a part of our daily life, our daily walk. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you. We've been bought with the very precious blood of Christ. Therefore, we're to glorify you in these earthly bodies. And that may, may that be our, the goal of every person who is here. God, for those who don't know if they even know you, that they would repent of sin, that they would, would recognize their sinfulness, that they would turn from sin and turn to God, and that they would trust in the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. And for that to be the defining moment that you tell us that they are born again from above, may today be that day. It's with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with his mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. God, we just thank you for the study. We look forward to what you'll teach us as we go through 2 Timothy in the weeks to come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.